he's going to read while he uh, delivers his message. So we're turning that over to him. Our speaker this morning is Joseph Farrell, and uh, it seems that everybody knows him as Joe, so you can say Joe when you greet him after the service. Uh, he's here with us. Uh, Joe comes to us right now from Washington, D.C. He's a part of IJM, International Justice Mission, and he's the director of uh, church development uh, for the Northeast. And today we're a part of the Northeast because he's here. Uh, at any rate, Joe's here to tell us about the work of global missions through IJM. Uh, he's been a pastor in a variety of places, college pastor and associate pastor, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and also Colorado Springs and uh, San Diego. He was also there. I don't know what he did in San Diego. He pretended he was doing ministry. I don't know how you can do ministry down there. It's too beautiful. Anyway, at any rate, Joe is here. He graduated a BA from uh, University of Colorado Boulder, uh, BA in business administration, did an MDiv from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary on the other side of the country. And uh, it's just a delight to have him. He's got a wife and four children. His youngest children is only four months old. And when he gets up here, you tell me, does he look like a father of a four-month-old child? I don't think so. Joe, it's good to have you. Come on up. I'm not sure about that question because I, sometimes I think I look so tired. You'd be like, yes, of course he's been not sleeping at night with a four-month-old. It is great to be here. It's my first time in Bloomington, uh, but in some ways it feels very familiar, having gone to a large university and, and with kind of a small-town vibe. Uh, this feels like a, a familiar place, and, and to have been with you this morning is truly an honor and a privilege. One of the things that is still most valuable and special to me is the incredible mystery that's been underway, whether you've been conscious of it or not, that, that since we've been here, singing together and praying and hearing about missionaries around the world, that the Spirit of God has been at work ever so subtly and gently. And in that mystery, uh, it's just transforming us into the likeness of our Savior, Jesus. And so I just want to pause before... Uh, launching into the message and just reflect again that God's spirit is at work in us this very moment. Let's, let's pray. Fathers, we take this Sunday to think about your work around the world and your work of justice. We're grateful that you are present with us that you stir our souls, that you refine us. We do pray, God, that in this time you would make us more like Jesus, that uh, you would anoint our listening and guide our very thoughts, and that we would be focused on what you want us to hear and who you want us to become. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, being in a university town, I know that there's oftentimes a, that academic environment prompts us to ask tough questions to study, to think. And this is actually a practice that I've been doing for many years, uh, just asking myself tough questions as a part of sort of checking in with God and tracing, measuring my own life as a, as a disciple. And one of the questions that I have used is this one. Are Jesus and I really interested in the same things? Think on that uh, for a moment with me. Are, you, are we really interested in the same things? Think about what Jesus is really passionate about? And is my heart aligned with his? 
What is it that really makes the heart of God come alive? And do I share those passions? Or is it the case that my relationship with God has become kind of like one of those stale, dormant romances where God has God's interests and I have my interests and and we bump into each other when we both need something out of the refrigerator. But for the most part, we're just kind of into our own thing. This morning, I'd like to explore two of God's passions that have a tendency to become somewhat unfamiliar to us. I'm almost certain that you would know these are two of God's passions. You've heard them before, but they have a tendency because of all the clutter and noise and distraction in our lives to drift to the place of stale and unfamiliar. And this is God's passion for the world. And God's passion for justice. First, God's passion for the world. God loves the world. Well, that's not much of a surprise, right? It wouldn't be a mission Sunday in any church anywhere in the world if you didn't talk about a scripture like John 3.16. For God so loves the world, the whole thing, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And you, you know this at a church like this. I know that you've, you've got at least this awareness that God loves the world. But I want to camp on this idea for a while this morning because of this is such a common scripture, such a common idea. That, like I said, it has this tendency to drift to the background. Because this love that God has for the world utterly preoccupies God's passion. I mean, this is a small rock flying through cold space in the grand scheme of the universe. But to us, it's an enormous and messy world with billions of people stretched out over vast continents full of confusing places and incredibly diverse cultures. With all these remote masses who are so far away from each other, so unfamiliar, so utterly unlike us, with all this chaos and complexity and dizzying disorder in the world today, God loves it. And it's not just scriptures like John 3.16. The whole narrative of a reason why God called out a holy people, the nation of Israel, was so that they would become a blessing to the world that God is so passionate about. I sometimes wonder what Jesus would have been like waking up on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, ready to walk around and begin teaching and meeting people and just trying to imagine how much excitement he would have and passion and love for the people who his paths he would cross with on that day. Ultimately, he then he would put his arms wide for those people and for us because of his love for the world. Contrast that, on the other hand, with what I am interested. And if you could look into my mind and see my thoughts and probe my heart, look into those places that we think of as sort of private places like your bank account or your daytime or your outlook calendar, if you could study all of those things, do you know what you would probably assess is my number one passion in life? Me. No, because so much of what we do is about keeping this thing alive. My needs, my comforts, my desires, my interests. 
Some of you are already thinking, what should we have for lunch today? How long is this going to last? Because I am getting a little hungry. It's like so much of the stuff that we do is just about our own survival, our own comfort that we get, tend to get turned inward so that we just think about the close and the convenient. But I know that, that that's not what the Christian life is to be about. So I want to be a better Christian. So on, on, on good days, I'm actually able to think about the needs of my family. Now that's good, right? That would make God happy. Like, I can actually put the needs of my wife ahead of my own. I can actually surrender my time and my desires and what I feel like I need to accomplish in order to feel like a successful person for the needs of what a four-month-old or a six-year-old might need. But I still know that's not where God wants me to stop. And so on really like super spiritual days, I'm actually able to think about the needs of the people who like me. Because that's safe. Like those are people that I know that if I offer to help or if I, if I do something, it, it, it won't be misconstrued as, as being like weird or they're, they're not going to reject me. So it's a safe way to kind of reach out and help people. But do you see how hard it is to break out beyond the close and the convenient? Sort of the me and mine. And all of this action and life of keeping ourselves alive, our interests, our passions, our own preoccupations, all this energy and effort. Everything is about me and mine. I'm so thankful, though, because we have a God who's filled with so much grace. And I think Jesus finds this preoccupation with the me and the mine pretty normal and understandable. But just because something is normal and understandable does not necessarily mean it's godly. So I think we could agree on a, at least a better goal. And that would be having the goal of a heart that's really more like Christ. That's growing in a love for this broad world that Jesus loves. A heart that's actually living into the design that our maker had for us. That's the basic invitation on a mission Sunday that I would want you to hear. Is Jesus winsome call to discovering a new season of exploring his passion for the world. All the places represented by these flags and so many more. It's an invitation to explore and discover all these things that Jesus so loves before fear and our fallen nature just impoverish the richness of his love. So as you begin this journey out beyond the me and the mind, the close and the convenient, I want to give you another question to think about. And that would be, what is it that you think most people in the world find the hardest to believe about the Christian faith? If you think about that here for your context, it might be, well, something like the miraculous. It's just too hard to believe. It's just people say it's irrational. You can't believe a a dead guy came back to life like that's just too hard. And you might be right for this context where you live right now. But I would suggest to you what most people in the world find the hardest to believe about the Christian faith is simply the idea that God is good. And they find it hard to believe that God is good because they are in so much pain. How is it believable 
that God is good. We know that in the next 24 hours, 25,000 children will die for lack of nutrition and clean water. It's 1.5 billion people in the world who have no access to health care at all, zero. There are millions of children who live on the streets of the urban centers in our world with no guardian, no protector. They're completely vulnerable. How are they supposed to believe God is good? In a world of so much suffering, does God even have a plan for making it believable that he's good? Scripture actually does have a really clear answer. Turns out, we are the plan. So we see in places like Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. For me, this is one of those scriptures that the longer I look at it, the harder it gets. Because Jesus is not saying, hey, um, you actually, it's possible, you could be with a little bit of luck, the light of the world. He's not saying to the disciples, oh, hey, you guys are super busy. I mean, you've got like work and family and school. Like, So when it's convenient, like totally, when you get around to it, no rush, but be the light of the world. Like this is a really clear directive from Jesus. You are the light of the world. No plan B. And we see things like this in in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says one of the most amazing things, we therefore are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal to the world through us. What an amazing invitation that you and I would be asked, even appointed as Christ's ambassadors of goodness telling and showing the world of the great goodness of God. That's why I believe Christians have done what we've done for multiple millennia. If people are suffering because they haven't heard the gospel, we mobilize and we tell them and we plant churches and we send missionaries. If people are suffering because they're hungry, we figure out ways to feed them and teach them sustainable practices so they continue to eat. If they're suffering because they're sick, we provide medical care. If they're suffering because they're homeless, we build shelter. All of this action, activity, work is to show that it's truly believable, that God is in fact good. But there's another category of people who are suffering in the world. And they aren't suffering because they haven't heard the gospel or they don't have food or clean water or because they don't have medicine. They're suffering because they have an oppressor. They're suffering because of the abuse of other people. These are victims of injustice. At International Justice Mission, we always are careful to define what we mean by injustice as a specific kind of biblical sin. It's one of those words in our culture that could have many meanings. So many conversations could have practically no meaning at all. So you know when you go to the supermarket... And you have nine things on your list that you need to get. So you grab that little plastic basket, you go get your nine things, and you're so excited when you come forward to see the express line is open. Ten items or less. And there's one person in front of you unloading their stuff. And what's the first thing you do when you get there? You count. And you will all do it. I know it. 
you start counting. How many items do they have? 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. They have 12 items. This is the 10 item or less line. Okay, that feeling is not injustice. In Scripture, injustice is a specific kind of sin. Injustice is the abuse of power to take from others the good things that God intends for them. Their life, their liberty, their dignity, and the fruits of their love and their labor. So whatever any one person abuses power in any way to take from another person any of those good things, life, liberty, dignity, and the fruits of their love and their labor... That's injustice. So we see it in places like Psalm chapter or Psalm 10, the 8th and ninth verse. They lie in wait near the villages, and from ambush they murder the innocent. Their eyes watch in secret for their victims. Like a lion in cover, they lie in wait. They lie in wait to catch the helpless. They catch the helpless and drag them off in their nets. To our modern ears, this can sound a little melodramatic. I said, I only arrived in Bloomington last night. I've yet to see any crouching lions in any of your grass. I've yet to see any of your neighbors grabbed in a net and hauled off into slavery. So what does injustice look like today? Well, the ministry I work for, International Justice Mission, serves among some of the poorest in the world. And I'd like to introduce you to two people who we've worked with. First, I'd like you to meet Joseph. Joseph's a family man who ran a small marketplace in a popular uh, Nairobi slum. One day during election season, a riot breaks out near uh, this marketplace, and so the police show up, and to disperse the crowd of the riot, they began shooting their weapons into the air. Somehow during the fray, Joseph is accidentally struck in the arm by a stray bullet. Also one, during the time, one of the police officers loses his firearm. And if you are a police officer in Kenya and you lose your weapon, you are in line for some serious punishment. So later that day, that police officer and a few more return to this area of the riot and they discover Joseph has been shot in the arm. So they fabricate a story that Joseph and a few of his friends attacked the police officers and stole the weapon and that's why he was shot. So they round him up bring him to the uh, Nairobi Remand prison where he's thrown in jail and charged with a crime. Robbery with violence, which is a capital offense in Kenya. Joseph's now thrown in jail to rot while his wife, Anne, who's three months pregnant, and their five kids already are forced to try to figure out how now do we survive with our primary breadwinner in jail. Some of the kids will surely have to drop out of school and they'll just try to scrape together some kind of meager existence. In 2012, IJM Kenya and our other partners there estimated that as many as 20 to 40 percent of the prisoners awaiting trial in Nairobi's industrial remand prison are likely innocent. How's a good Christian man like Joseph and his wife and his kids and so many other innocent captives, victims of police abuse, supposed to believe that God is good? Second, I'd like you to meet Joe T. Joe T. happened to grow up in India, but this is a story that could be told in the Philippines or Thailand or a number of other places around the world. One day, out of desperation, Joe T. decides she wants to get out of the abusive family situation, and, and she runs away. She ends up in a train station, confused, not sure what to do. 
Three women notice her in distress and approach her, hear some of her story, and they invite her to come on the train to the next city where they'll help her find a job in a cafe. Joti doesn't really trust them, but what can she do? She's desperate, so she goes on the train with them. The women very kindly bring her a cup of tea, which unfortunately was drugged. So Joti wakes up a few days later to discover that she's been sold into a brothel for about $280. She tells the brothel keeper, you can't make me do this kind of work. I'm 14. There's no way. To which they proceed to lock Joti in an underground holding cell where they hit her every day and only offer her alcohol to drink. Eventually, what can she do but relent? To which, from the first day, she's forced to serve 20 to 30 customers every day without ever leaving the confines of the brothel. And all of this in a city with one of the worst HIV-AIDS epidemics in our world today. UNICEF tells us there are somewhere between 800,000 and a million children taken new into forced prostitution every year. How are they? How is Jyoti supposed to believe that God is good? As Christians here today, how are we supposed to regard such suffering? What does God think about this kind of suffering? We return to Psalm 10, verses 17 and 18. Listen to this. Hear, you hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry. Defending the fatherless and the impressed in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. Friends, this is really good news. This God hates injustice and he wants it to stop. So Gary Haugen, our founder and president, has written a book called The Good News About Injustice. And people will ask, what is the good news about injustice? The answer is simple. God is against it. He hates it. And that matters. Well, then that raises the question then again, okay, if he hates it and he wants it to stop, what's his plan? And the scripture once again makes it very clear. We are the plan. So we see in places like Micah 6.8, a really familiar, popular verse, he has told you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God. And we would think that if God was so kind to give us a short list of things that he asked us to do, just three little things that we'd really pay attention. But that first one, do justice. But you know, Micah 6.8 is a minor prophet. It's in this little section of the Old Testament called minor prophet. So it must be a minor message. It's easy to discard. Except in Matthew 23, 23, Jesus is preaching the woes, the warnings to the scribes and Pharisees. And he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you've tithed your mint and your dill and your cumin. The lightest of spices, they would weigh out one-tenth. He said, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faith. Better that you had done both than done one and neglect the other. See, in that moment, Jesus says that we're actually supposed to be living in some kind of balance. That somehow we do the things we love to do, like worship and study and be together in community and small groups and fellowship and retreats. All the great things that we do as part of the life, the religious life of the church. But we're balancing it with these heavier, weightier matters of justice, mercy, and faith. It's we, it's you and I who are God's plan for seeking justice. 
we're God's plan for making it believable to victims of injustice that he is a good God. So, And this is what happens when we begin to work with people like Joseph. We begin to see these miracles happen. At IJM, we experience the process, experience these little miracles in the process of getting to know Joseph. And when we learned about his case and the charges against this innocent man, we decided to represent him in court. The trial dragged on for 16 months. Then, during our global prayer gathering, which we do once a year, April, every year, in 2012, fervently prayed for his release. Then in May, the staff show up one morning to find out his trial is coming up. They go to the courthouse on the day of the trial only to discover the power is out. And if you're a judge in Nairobi and the power's out, what do you do? But you just close the court. But our attorney, hearing the power is out, ran to the nearest market, bought as many candles as she could hold, and ran back to the courthouse. Not something attorneys normally do in Kenya. The judge, being so inspired by her actions, declared the courthouse open. And so it was by candlelight that the trial was heard, and ultimately the verdict was read, and Joseph was declared innocent, able to go home after 16 miserable months. We're still journeying with Joseph and his family to make sure all that was taken from him is restored. But for now, he is able to be a faithful and present Christian father for all six of his children and with his wife. And and Joe T., if you could meet her now, would tell you in her own words that one day in the brothel, one of the other girls said, you know, I think I know a God who might be able to help us. Now, as a young Hindu girl, you could take as many gods as you want. And if one might actually be able to help, then great. So this other girl says, All I, I don't know anything about the God. I just know the God's name is Jesus. So Jyoti just begins to pray simply, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And sometimes that's the only prayer that you need to say. Because within a week of Jyoti beginning to pray that prayer, an IJM investigator was able to infiltrate that brothel, get Jyoti's testimony, and take it to a secure police contact who was eventually then able to lead a raid on Jyoti's brothel and get her out of the nightmare and eventually into Christian aftercare where she would come to know Jesus as her personal savior. Within a, a few weeks of all this, Jyoti heard of another raid going back to the same brothel. Jyoti volunteered to go back, to face her oppressors again, to be part of another rescue. And so while there, she helped identify another minor girl named Kalindi. And Kalindi, being so inspired by Jyoti, knows that the raid was tipped off. And she steps forward in the midst of all the chaos and says, I know where they've hid some of the youngest girls. So that day we're able to rescue seven other girls, some younger than 12, who had been yet to be violated. Jyoti just brought this little bit of courage that she could summon to do justice. Kalindi was then inspired to do justice. And do you see how all of this begins to work when the people of God just simply respond to God's passion? We get to sit back and watch him perform these miracles. So what does this mean for us today? Well, one of the things, we just can't do nothing. There's something that we're called to do. We can't claim that we didn't know. We're part of God's plan for bringing justice in the world. So here's a couple of things that you could consider doing yourselves. One of the things that you might be, consider doing is just beginning to pray with us. 
IJM is desperate for prayer. The places we're sending our staff into, some of the darkest places in the world. And it is through prayer that we're prying the fingers of darkness off of people so that they can be set free. So if you'd like to join us in a prayer, I brought prayer cards. You can sign up for this. I think they're on the welcome table. Fill this card out. I'll bring it back. You'll begin to get a weekly email updating you on prayer concerns and praises for IJM. So that would be one thing you could begin to do would be to pray. Second thing you could do is just learn more about injustice. I've only just scratched the surface of what's going on in the world. There's so much more that's out there and so much more that you could do. But begin to find one thing to which God is calling you to do, to be someone who fights injustice, who stops violence, who ends oppression. Be a part of engaging that work. The third thing would be as, as a church community, as ECC, what would it mean for you all to do justice? To have a global expression of justice in your work of mission, but also a local expression. Injustice just isn't way over there. It's here too. So what are the areas and ways you can participate as a church in being God's plan for bringing justice in the world? I'll finish with this story. Uh, when I was uh, in high school, teenager, I grew up in Southern California, and sometimes my, my father would take us uh, up to L.A. to see the sights or to do some funny, strange things in L.A. that you can see. And one of the weirdest places in the world, I think, is a place called Muscle Beach. Has anybody ever been there? Okay, a few, few people. You can, you can testify with me. It's one of the weirdest places in the world. Okay. Muscle Beach, for those of you who haven't been there, it is like a Gold's Gym kind of environment. Like every single weight and barbell and dumbbell and thing you would need in order to build some muscle on your body. Except it is an outside, it's right there on the beach, and there's bleachers. And people come and sit there with the beach there and watch these huge, muscular, crazy buff guys from L.A. lift weights. I told you, it's really weird. So we're sitting there watching these guys lift weights and muscles popping out of these places. And I just it occurred to me to wonder, what is all of that muscle really for? I guess if you have a stuck jam jar, you can like pop that thing open. (laughs) But you know actually what all of that muscle is really for? All that strength? For posing. And I get to be in some churches like this on a regular basis that are really strong churches. Communities of faith in this country and around the world that have a lot of muscle. What is it all for? My prayer for you all is that it's not just for posing. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a God that loves and does justice. This is your work. So we pray, Father, that you will move us all to engage in that, to to really press hard into the hard work of what it means to do justice locally and globally. We'll include that in part of what it means to be a disciple. As someone who walks with Jesus, someone who knows your love and passion for the world, that will participate in your plan for demonstrating your great goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.